Well, if you would remain standing, which you are, if you haven't dismissed your kids to children's uh, ministry, you can do so now. Parents, you can take your kids there. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we're going through this series on prayer. And throughout this series, we are praying that the Lord might ignite in us a deeper passion for prayer, both individually and as a church. And so last week, we looked about how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be going through different aspects of the Lord's Prayer using this acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. This is a a method that's been used since the early church origin in the third century used this kind of method. Matthew Henry used it in the 1600s, and we use it even today. And so today we're going to be looking at adoration from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, and that's in verses 1 through 10. So if you have that, you can turn there now or look up on the screens and hear the word of the Lord for us today. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are the, Lord, or the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit down and let's come to this Lord, now, as we uh, pray and seek to understand his word. Father in heaven, we come to you as needy people, as those who need to hear from you. We ask that you would cause our hearts to look upward as we pray, that you would lift our eyes to you, help us to praise you, to exalt your name. Pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your spirit today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is your typical response when you receive an amazing gift? I remember some years ago, I received an amazing gift from my wife. She flew in a friend of mine from out of town for a special birthday. And however, my response was 
less than ideal. When my friend walked in, I was sitting on the couch, and my friend, he was coming in from out of town. I had not seen him for years. Sarah had planned this for months, and he came in from out of town, and I looked over, and I said, hey, how'd you get here? Not the appropriate response in that moment. Fast forward to last week. My son, who's three, Blake, had a birthday. And he also received an amazing gift. It was a a Paw Patrol figurine with all sorts of figures. So there's a car and all sorts of things. If you don't know what Paw Patrol is, uh, ask a young parent later. It, It was an amazing gift. As he was opening this, there was still wrapping on on the gift, but he could see what it was. And as he was opening it, his arms went up, and he started jumping up and down, up and down. He said, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol. Now that was an appropriate response to an amazing gift. And in today's text, the Lord is going to highlight for us what is the appropriate response to his most amazing gift. And that's what we have in Hannah's prayer. Remember, we've been going through this series on prayer. Prayer is a relationship. It's a conversation with the living God. More specifically, it's our response to the conversation that God has initiated with us. And since God initiated this conversation, since he made a way for us to be in relationship with us, he gets to tell us how to come to him, how to best develop that relationship. One important way he's told us to approach him is through these prayers of adoration. We went through the Lord's Prayer last week. He said, pray like this, hallowed be your name. And that's what we have here in Hannah's prayer. We've got a, a prayer of adoration And it leads us to the big idea of this message, of Hannah's prayer, and it is this. We are to rejoice in the Lord by remembering who he is. Rejoice in the Lord by remembering who he is. And we're going to expound upon that big idea by looking at each one of these parts more closely in the text. First, rejoice in the Lord. We find that in verse 1. And second, recount who he is. That's in verses 2 through 10. So let's look at this picture of what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord in verse 1. Remember what we have here. We haven't been in 1 Samuel, so just kind of get us a little bit up to speed. What we have here is Hannah's prayer after God gave her a son, Samuel, following years of infertility. But remember that Hannah is unlike some of the prominent women of the Bible. She's not like Deborah, who uh, was a judge in Israel. She's not like Esther, who was a queen. She had no position. She was an ordinary woman, no formal position. And her appearance in God's word is very, very brief. We only learn about her in these first two chapters of Samuel. We don't hear from her the rest of the Bible. But through Hannah, God chose to use her to impact the entire world. Wow, that was, you really needed to know that point. Well, notice what Hannah's reflex is when God gave her this son. It comes in the first two words of our passage. It says, Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed. And I know what some of you may be thinking. Well, that's 
easy for Hannah to do. She just received everything she ever wanted. She received a son. So of course she would pray. But Hannah didn't just pray when things were going well. We learn from chapter one that her prayer was forged in through trial, through hardship. You see, Hannah was married to a man who also had another wife named Peninnah. And this other wife, Peninnah, had a lot of children and Hannah had none. And what's worse than that, Peninnah used to ridicule Hannah year after year after year. It was so bad that Hannah had a hard time eating at times. She was frequently weeping. And in this time, she would call out to the Lord. She would pour out her heart to him. Remember, we've talked about prayer as helplessness. We've talked about how desperate people pray. And boy, was Hannah desperate. And boy, did she pray. She poured out her heart to the Lord, and she looked to him in her time of need. And so we need to pay attention to these two words, Hannah prayed. Now, what did she pray? Before we look at that, we need to consider what she did not pray. If you look throughout the whole prayer, Hannah does not even mention Samuel once. She doesn't mention him. The Puritan Matthew Henry summarizes it well. He said, she, Hannah, overlooks the gift and praises the giver, where most forget the giver and fasten only on the gift. Listen again to what she prays. Her complete focus is upon the Lord. And like my three-year-old son, jumping up and down with the Paw Patrol gift, joy permeates from within her. First she says, my heart exults in the Lord. You see, every fiber of her being praised the Lord. The heart, biblically speaking, is the seed of all that you are. It's your thoughts, motivations, actions. They're all contained there in the heart. So she's expressing her great joy in the Lord with everything that she has. Then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. A little raise of hands. How many of you in the last week said, hey, my horn is exalted in the Lord? Okay, not, not too many. That's because we don't talk like this today. A, a horn represents the glory of an animal. It represents its strength, its usefulness, its dignity. And Hannah is saying that her horn, her, her head is lifted high. Her situation has changed. Her dignity and reputation have been elevated. But it's in the Lord. It's because of the Lord. She realizes that it's in the Lord that and through the Lord who has brought favor upon her and it's in the Lord because uh, of him that this has come upon her and then she says this my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation Hannah says literally in the original my mouth opens wide against my enemies <laughs> It's, a, it's another animal reference. She's saying she's defeated her enemies. She's in a different place than her enemies. Why? Because she has rejoiced in the Lord's salvation. Really referring to deliverance here. The deliverance that she has experienced in her life's circumstances through having a child. The Lord has delivered her from shame and he has changed her life through the birth of Samuel. So what is Hannah saying big picture? She is full of joy because of who the Lord is. 
and what he has done. This blessing in her life, this answered prayer, this child has caused her not just to give thanks to the Lord for him, but to reflect deeply upon who the Lord is. And similarly, today, if you are a follower of Christ, God wants you, he wants us to remember what he has given us. That amazing gift which has lifted your horn, which has changed your status. If you know and love Jesus, he has given you eternal life through Jesus' salvation and his sacrifice for us. He has adopted you into his family. He has given you his spirit, which is a down payment of the internal inheritance, which is yours. He has made you an heir and a co-heir with Christ. And we could go on and on and on. But the big point is God wants us to respond to his amazing gift, like Hannah responded here, with rejoicing in who he is and what he has done. But we cannot pray like Hannah if we have not yet received God's amazing gift. So I know that there are some here this morning that are still checking out church, still checking out who God is, who Jesus is. And if you do not yet know Jesus, or you're unsure if you do, please know today that this amazing gift of knowing Jesus Christ is available to you. He has sacrificed his own life for you. He has taken God's wrath upon himself for you. And he offers this free, amazing gift to you. If you would just turn from your disobedience to him, your, your sins, turn from them and turn to the Lord and trust in him in faith. So would you do that today if you don't yet know Jesus? Would you trust in him so that you could adore and praise the Lord in this way? Well, many of us, if not most of us, know and love Jesus who are here today. And if we're honest, it can be very challenging to spend our prayer time in this part, in praise and adoration. A lot of us go straight to the petition. We just ask things of the Lord. And one reason that this is is because we often use prayer primarily as a vehicle for our requests. We talked about this last week, but oftentimes we put ourselves in the wrong posture before God. We think we, God is there just to serve us and just to answer our prayers. But here we learn that in adoration, what it does is it puts us in the proper position between us and God, that we are needy, that we need to praise the one who has given all things to us. Adoration brings refreshment to us. It brings refreshment to us because it helps us to reinforce what is true of us. It, it causes us to remember that we are here on earth to glorify God. We're not here to have a great family or a great legacy. We're not here to have a great career. God has put you on this earth to glorify him. And as we adore him in prayer, we are doing and reminding ourselves of what we get to do, which is to praise him. That is our purpose for being. Well, it leads to the obvious question. How do we do this? How do we adore God in this way? How do we pray these prayers of adoration? And the answer comes in verses 2 to 10. It's by recounting who God is. You know, many years ago, Sarah and I were able to uh, go to a 
a play in London. We lived in Europe at the time. We were able to go in a play, to a play in London called Les Mis. And if you know Les Mis and the storyline, it's a fantastic play. Now, I'm not a play guy. I'm not really a musical guy. Uh, you know, you know I'm more of a sports guy. Let's just be honest. But after I watched this play, I was moved to tears. <laughs> I don't really cry at those kind of things. I was moved to tears because of the, the power of the performance, the amazing actors, the set, but really the gospel themes that were played out on the stage. And I tell you what, after I got out of that, that play in London, I went and wanted to tell everyone about it. I was like, have you ever been to Les Mis in London? That's the best thing I've ever seen. I was telling everyone about it. Why was that? Why did I want to tell everyone about that play? Well, I think C.S. Lewis put his finger on it when he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. See, when it comes to the Lord, he wants us to be regularly enjoying him. And we do that by recounting who he is. We do that by recounting what he has done. So prayers of adoration, they increase and complete our enjoyment of God. Verses 2 to 10, Hannah does just that. She affirms the many attributes of God. But I'm going to summarize those in two main categories, that he is holy and that he is sovereign. First, Hannah rejoices in the Lord by affirming that he is holy. Look what she says in verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. Meaning, you can't measure or compare his holiness to another. She says, there is none besides you. God doesn't have any peers. There's no one almost equal to God. A lot of times we can have this deception and think that maybe the world is about God versus Satan and there's these two powers that are fighting it out. It's not the case, friends. It, there is no debate. There is no battle in that sense. God is so far above. There's none like him. There's none beside him. She says there is no rock like our God. That means God is faithful. He is unchanging. He is unmovable. He will always fulfill his promises every time. Now, we don't always see how he's fulfilling those promises in the moment, but he will always do it. Holiness defines our God. He is perfect. He is set apart. He is the most holy being in the universe, and it's not even close. Therefore, he deserves our praise, which Hannah obviously understood. Now, you may be wondering, how did, how did Hannah pray in this way? Like, she's an amazing woman, which is true. She was an amazing woman. Well, almost certainly, Hannah learned to pray by meditating on God's word. Because many of the words, very exact words from her prayer, are taken from Deuteronomy 32. You remember Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. This was probably a song she had memorized and meditated on. She was remembering God's major event of salvation in the Old Testament, which was the exodus out of Egypt. Hannah was bathing herself in God's word. She had, she had uh, dwelt upon who God was as it was expressed in his word. It's another reminder for us that the word of God 
must drive and fuel our prayers. The word of God and prayer go together. That's how we adore him, by knowing his word. So as a quick way to apply this, I would say take time this afternoon or this week to dwell upon the holiness of God when you pray. One way to do that is by meditating upon God's word in Psalm 46.10, which says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among all the nations. You can do the same by turning to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, the one that we talk about frequently, when the seraphim are covering themselves in the heavenly throne room and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, I want us to notice what Hannah does so masterfully here in her prayer. So she emphasizes God's holiness there in verse 2. And she's highlighting what theologians call uh, transcendence, that God is so far above us. He is beyond us, and he's distant from creation. But then, as we move to verses 3 through 10, she will emphasize God's sovereignty and his imminence. That's what theologians call his imminence. It's, it's that God is present with us. He's upholding the universe. He governs the universe. In other words, Hannah affirms these two truths about God, and we also should affirm these two truths, that God is holy and that he is sovereign. He is transcendent, far above us, and he is imminent. He is with us. So let's look at how Hannah highlights that the Lord is sovereign, starting in verse 3. Now, if you're like me, you hear the word sovereignty, and kind of your mind goes like, what in the world? This is like a church term. What, what, is, what does that mean? Well, God's sovereignty means that he rules and reigns over us. He is the greatest sovereign or king. But not only that, also his sovereignty means that he governs and directs all. That means there's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing outside of his grasp. Look at how Hannah describes an aspect of his sovereignty in verse 3. And that's how he's sovereign over all people, even his enemies. She says, talk more, not so, uh, so, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, who is Hannah praying to <laughs> or praying about? The only enemy that we know of Hannah's is Peninnah. That's the rival wife. But here she's using plural nouns. She's talking about more than just the rival wife. Most likely she's talking more generally about any people who oppose the Lord. She's saying to them that the Lord is the God of knowledge. Nothing escapes his notice. He always knows all things at every moment, everything past, present, and future. He doesn't have to recall it to mind. It's all fully present for him. And so those who proudly mocked her for being barren, he knows that. Those today who say there is no God, he, he knows that. Those who have hurt you, he knows that. This is a warning for all those who oppose God. God is all knowing. But then in verses 4 to 8, Hannah affirms that God is not only sovereign over all people, including 
his enemies, but all of life's circumstances. Sometimes we can view God as if he set up the world and then he kind of just let it run. And, and he just left us to do whatever we want to do. And that is not what the Bible says in any way. In verses 4 to 5, Hannah describes three sets of great reversals that she has observed in life. Listen to what she says. In verse 4, she observes this great reversal of those who have gone from power to weakness and then those who have gone from weakness to power. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. If you think about it, we've seen this reality very frequently, often with rulers of nations. Think about how Hitler started and how he ended. He started and he had a lot of power. He ended in weakness and he killed himself. Same thing was true for a guy like Saddam Hussein. He had a lot of power in Iraq. But by the end of his life, he was hiding in a spider hole, cowardly, with no power, stripped of everything he had. In verse 5, Hannah observes this other great reversal, having a lot to having a little, and vice versa. She says in verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Again, we can think of many examples of this as we look around our world. We can think of a man like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was uh, part of cryptocurrency, and he was worth billions of dollars. And then he was found to do some things he shouldn't have been doing, and now he's in jail, probably for the rest of his life. On the other side, we can think of people like Howard Schultz, who grew up in housing projects. And then he became the CEO of Starbucks. Did fairly well for himself. He's now a billionaire. People like Oprah have a similar rags to riches story. Well, Hannah goes on in the second half of verse 5. She is likely thinking about her own situation. She describes one who is barren, who then bears seven children. Now, she didn't bear seven children. She only bore six. But seven is the number of perfection. And then she compares the barren one who has children to those who had many children being alone, or those who had many children being alone and deserted. She says this, the barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So why are we harping on this? Why, why is this a big deal? Why does Hannah pray this in her prayer of adoration? The bottom line is that Hannah is describing life as it is. If you've lived life long enough, you have seen these kind of great reversals in life. You may be going through one of them right now. But I want us to notice how starting in verse 6, Hannah interprets these circumstances of life as all coming from the Lord. In verses 4 to 5, she doesn't mention the Lord, but in 4 to 6, the Lord is in every phrase. John Woodhouse says of these verses, this is what the world looks like when you rejoice in the Lord and exult in his salvation. In other words, if you have a God-centered view of life, this is how you view the world. She knows that the Lord is in control of everything. Listen to what she says, starting in verse 6. She says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes 
and inherit a seat of honor. See, Hannah has been at the bottom, and now she's at the top. She has experienced this kind of great reversal of life, and she affirms that all of it has come from the Lord. The good and the bad have all come from him. And we see this principle throughout all of Scripture, do we not? We can just look throughout the biblical record. Joseph was sold as a slave, and he later became the second highest ruler in all of Egypt. Daniel was sent away as an exile, and then he also became one of the rulers of Babylon. We can think the opposite way. Job had everything, and God took it away for a season only to restore it again. Or Nebuchadnezzar, he had everything. He was the greatest king in all the earth, and the Lord took it away. The point to all of this is that Hannah acknowledges this truth. There is no random chance in the world. that one's, She's acknowledging that one's circumstances in life are from the Lord. He is sovereign over all of it. But so many times when we're going through life, we don't believe that. We don't believe that on a functional level, that the Lord could be in this circumstance. I know that some of you are infertile, aren't able to have children. He is in that circumstance. Some of you are really struggling with finances, and you don't know how ends are going to be met. The Lord is in that circumstance. Some of you have a lot, and God has given you great responsibility with that wealth. He is in that circumstance. Now, I know you could be objecting and say, no, you know, I'm in this position in life, whatever it is, good or bad, because of my choices, good or bad, because of my hard work or lack of hard work or because of me. That's what we're told as good Americans. It's all because of me, where I'm at. Now, the Bible affirms that reality, that we make real choices, and those choices have real consequences. That is true. And so if we break the law, we'll probably go to jail. There are real consequences for choices. But it also affirms this, that God controls all the circumstances of our lives. Both things are true. They have to be held in tension. There's a mystery there. But today, if you are lacking in this area of prayer, in, this, in these prayers of adoration, there's a good chance that you've failed to functionally believe what Hannah knew about God. You have failed to functionally believe that God is sovereign over all of your circumstances, every single one, and he can be trusted. Well then, Hannah affirms why the Lord has this right, why he has the right to be so involved in our world, so involved in our lives. He, she says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. You see, Hannah knows her place in the world. Her prayer acknowledges that the world belongs to the Lord. He founded it, and therefore he can do whatever he wants with it. That's what prayers of adoration do. They put us in our right position before a holy and sovereign God. Well, then Hannah highlights a third aspect of God's sovereignty in these final two verses, which is his sovereignty 
over our eternal destiny. Hannah presents the good news and the bad news about God's sovereignty. The good news is at the beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 10. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, and at the end of verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's good news. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We want that. But the bad news is in the middle. She says this in verse 9. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. In other words, we cannot stand in our own strength before the Lord. She says this in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Then she says the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He's the judge of all. What this is saying is that those the Lord deems as the wicked or adversaries, he will bring judgment upon them. That means all the wrongs that we see in this world will one day be made right by the Lord. Wicked and those who oppose him, the bad guys will not win in the end. So why is this bad news? Well, it's good news if we're on the right news because every one of us, by default, is an adversary of the Lord because of our sin. Every one of us has been wicked in the Lord's sight, and we all deserve this judgment that is coming that she talks about. And that's why the end of Hannah's prayer is so amazing, because it ends with such hope. Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Hannah spoke about something that was far beyond her, far off, and now looking back, we can see so clearly what she was doing. Notice how she ends her prayer in verse 10. She says that the Lord will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Remember, when Hannah prayed this, there wasn't yet a king in Israel. There had never been a king in Israel. And she's talking about his king. Her words were prophetic. Now, on one level, this prayer would be fulfilled just even in that generation through the first kings of Israel, through Saul, through David, through Solomon. But really, God was foreshadowing something much greater going on here. Much greater, something much greater that would be fulfilled through this ordinary woman's prayer. Because hundreds of years later, God would strengthen and exalt his anointed king, his Messiah. His king would not come to earth as a king, but as a carpenter. He would not come from a rich family, but he would grow up in poverty. He would not be outwardly attractive, but he would be one from whom men hide their faces. He would not attend the best schools. He would not rub shoulders with the most influential people, but with nobodies in a small, obscure town in Galilee. God was preparing the ultimate great reversal. His anointed king would take the form of a servant and he would humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Apostle Paul put it this way, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And now this king's horn has been exalted. His head has been lifted up. Paul again says in Philippians, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Friends, Jesus' anointed king, Jesus Christ, did this for you. So that by trusting in him, you might not be counted as his adversary, not as the wicked, but as the faithful ones that he would protect, that you would be clothed with faithfulness. And I wonder, have you accepted this amazing gift this morning? If you haven't, let today be the day you trust in him. For those of us who have, remember, God has orchestrated this plan. He knows what he's doing. He he has planned all of history. He is in control of all of the future. He is sovereign and he is holy. And as we remember who he is and what he's done in Christ, we will be able, like Hannah, to rejoice in the Lord with our whole being. So how should we respond to God's amazing gift? It's with prayers of adoration. Oh, come, let us adore him today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the beauty of your word, the beauty of this prayer you have given us. Lord, we want to have our hearts cry out to you in praise and adoration, but if we're honest, oftentimes our hearts are in different places. So Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you help us to remember through your word, through what we have experienced of you, who you are and what you have done? And help us to call out to you that we might enjoy you and that our enjoyment of you might be complete as we call out and praise to that in Christ's name.